Hello and welcome to episode 6 of our Digital Solutions series. I'm Andrew Walker alongside David Crouch and it's been over a month since our last podcast and we have lots to talk about on today's show. Indeed we do, Andrew. Um, of course, Microsoft just keeps making lots of changes. There's just lots of new things out there as as people start to use and, and uh, assimilate some of this technology. So we've got a lot of um, uh, new things to say. Absolutely. And we've been busy with a major upgrade to our website. And we've also started on some interesting social campaigns, but we still have time to squeeze in a quick podcast, I believe. Yeah, even if uh, most of this podcast has been done on the weekend. So let's kick off the show as our regular contributor, Doug McLaughlin, joins us for the segment for The Decision Maker. Welcome back to our segment called For the Decision Maker, where we check in with the head of our consulting group, Doug McLaughlin, as he gives a bottom line recommendation on a key topic of interest. Now, David, what is our topic this podcast? Well, Andrew, as we've uh, entered into this uh, era of digital transformation, a a key part of the uh, engagement that we have that's usually done through digital means is uh, not only to stay in dialogue with customers and prospects, but to to allow them to provide you with some feedback and input. And surveying is the major tool in doing so. There's so many different tools and techniques uh, to accomplish this that uh, we really need to get, you know, something clear for decision makers to just grab a hold of this is what we should work with. Okay, so for customers that are using Microsoft Dynamics 365 for their primary customer solution, what is our bottom line recommendation for handling surveying? Doug, I know that there are lots of tools to choose from. So many tools, Andrew, and and, uh, hi, by the way, to both you and David. Bottom line, I believe Voice of the Customer for Microsoft is the best tool for most organizations who want to get going with surveys and and really keep using them for the long term. It's it's a great tool. Yeah, uh, chipping in there on uh, Doug, yeah, that uh, in the past, of course, you a lot of people use click dimensions, and you still can use click dimensions. But uh, um, and of course, for simple stuff, you can you can use Microsoft Forms for quick one offs. But what, why don't you run us through what some of the, the the key benefits that you see in Voice of the Customer? Yeah, absolutely. You know, Voice of the Customer, I think it's about a year old now, but it keeps like most things Microsoft brings out, keeps getting better and better over time. Uh, It is built right into Dynamics, so it's fully integrated. It's not a third-party product that you have to worry about synchronizing your marketing lists between two systems and keeping them in sync. It's, you know, you're using the same data. Uh, It has a great set of features in terms of, you know, all sorts of different question types, you know, star ratings, smiley faces, ranked lists, net promoter scores, all sorts of great things like that you have a lot of flexibility as well in designing surveys with you know all kinds of different kinds of questions uh, that you can build um, you it has branching so if you want to get really sophisticated in in your surveys you know lots of great features there's there's also uh, a new um, a, a new feature that lets you create a, sort of a custom entity for a specific survey where you can collect really detailed information and then use workflows inside of Dynamics to automate responses or escalation or notification. So you can do things like say, you know, if uh, if someone rates us, you know, lower than a six out of ten on our service, you know, please send that to someone in the customer service department. Uh, so some very sophisticated features. Yeah, that's. Um and I think you highlighted there, not only is it sophisticated now and you can really do some complex things about it, the real key issue here uh, 
because there's there's dozens and dozens of other uh, survey tools you can use, uh, like SurveyMonkey and so on. It's completely integrated. And to me, there's just no getting around how important that integration is. I think that's right. And, you know, we have a lot of smaller clients who are using, you know, other, you know, good products like SurveyMonkey and things like that. But the big challenge there is they're not integrated and keeping them in sync and, and you know, keeping track of, you know, unsubscribes in the survey tool and making sure that data comes across. It gets very complicated. Uh, we've set up voice of the customer in as little as a day for a small business that just wanted like a five question satisfaction survey. Uh, so it's pretty quick to learn and implement and train end users on how to maintain the surveys and use the data. We're, we're really happy with it. Yeah, and I think that's that's so critical as well as 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 we said that surveying now you just have to do that all the time. And so voice of the customer can just be a regular part of the rest of your digital engagement. Exactly. And you can start simply, you know, you can have, you can set it up so that you send out surveys manually if you like. And, you know, when a, when a service request or a case or a work order is closed and you want to collect feedback on that, but it's pretty easy to automate those as well. And say, you know, once those things are, once a, once a case is closed, uh, send out the survey, you can even build in conditions into your workflows to say, well, you know, if we sent them a workflow in the last 10 days, don't send another one. Uh, so you can get very sophisticated. And so you can start simple and build up over time. I think that's the main message there. So Andrew, there we have it from, from Doug. His bottom line is uh, really for people that are using Dynamics, they should be using voice to the customer. All right, lots of benefits to talk about. Thanks so much, Doug. And we'll be right back with the kickoff of our Being Digital segment. We are starting a new segment called Conversations About Being Digital. So with a tip of the hat to Nicholas Negroponte, off we go. The digital revolution has been occurring over the past 40 to 50 years, but we have finally passed the tipping point where data and information is being captured and stored digitally, and communications are almost all completely handled by digital means. Suddenly, and I say this with some irony, we are now undergoing digital transformations. That is coping and capitalizing on the implications of what digital technologies have given us. For business enterprises, Microsoft is one of many voices making it a central tenet of organizational change. But several studies have indicated that most industries are significantly less than 50% digitized. Ask any 10 CIOs how they define digital transformation, and you're likely to get 10 different answers with one common theme, a laundry list of technology projects. So we will set out to explore what this all means to us. What do we really have to do to participate in digitally transforming? What technologies are working and which need more baking? Is this some kind of hype? What are the benefits and what are the costs? And what happens to laggards? We'll be joined each month by different contributors from a wide spectrum of backgrounds and experience to help us sort this out. Andrew, who's this month's guest? 
Thanks, David. Today, we're starting off our digital journey with Associate Professor Kim Milnes of University of the Fraser Valley. Kim graduated with an MBA from UBC 30 years ago and spent the next 18 years as an IT consultant. Now, back when the internet was a new phenomena, she began working at TELUS in their innovative, interactive group doing leading-edge internet and telecommunications e-business projects. Kim then transitioned into post-secondary sector, teaching at BCIT, UBC, and eventually landed at UFE in 2006. And she has a deep interest and experience in all things digital with a particular expertise in digital marketing. But she is no usual academic. Her focus is on solving real world business problems. Welcome, Kim. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. Do you really think we are living in an era of digital transformation? And is it fundamentally different from what we had in the past in terms of information technology? I think that there's a different mindset. I think what we've got to think about here is that before we used to think of technology solving our basic problems, I think now we're trying to have digital solve and technology solve our more complex problems. And I think one of those problems is in the CIOs or in the CEOs mindset, which is that we really need to start thinking about our customers in a different way. And may not end up with digital, but it may end up with serving them in a way that's different than what we do today. David, do you have any thoughts to add on that? Well, Andrew, I, it's it's actually uh, it's interesting that because Kim talked about we're now getting to complex issues. I think some of the things are there's been a lot of trends and changes, whether it's things like the iPhone, social media, and stuff. That means that people are interacting differently, and business or organizations have to respond to that kind of change. Yeah, I agree. I think that's what we're talking about here is that we really need to start speaking in the tools and the language that our customers are speaking in. And I think they've gone digital. And I think they've actually outpaced businesses. So I think that, you know, we've, we've had all these tools put in the hands of our customers and our partners and our employees that they now want to interact with the companies they're dealing with using those same tools and those same devices. And I think we're really behind in that. I think that companies have to stop and say, oh, wait a minute, do we want people to be talking to to us using data. And I think we've always been, as companies, really um, protective of our data and really secretive with our data. And now we want to be able to share it with our companies, with other country companies, with um, our customers, and with a bunch of people that we didn't normally want to have any access to our data. Yeah, I, I agree. But I, I think it's, it's even more difficult than that. And that's one of the themes that I want to cover. Um, as we go through on these these podcasts is that a lot of this is just about being digital and not about transformation. So for instance, and uh, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to get uh, flack for this from, from some younger people, but just using a mobile app doesn't mean you're undergoing digital transformation. I've seen people using different apps that means uh, things are way better than they used to be, things are exactly the same, and things are worse. Like I'll use an example where uh, we, we use social media means to message to um, set up meetings that takes 10 times as long as it did through an old phone somebody up and arrange a meeting. So I think there's using the digital means, but also uh, for business organization, is it really transforming you or, or is it not? I mean, I think there's examples of both. I think there's examples of using, just using digital technology to facilitate something we've always done. And I think we're always going to have businesses that create goods that we need. And I don't think it's going to change because we're, we've gone digital. But it may change aspects of what we do. Um, it may change our production. It may change our conversations with customers. So you're right. Is it that a fundamental digital transformation? On the other hand, if you work for the travel industry or the music industry or the media industry, 
it has been a digital transformation. Those are completely different businesses than they were before. So I think it really depends on the sector you're in and, and where you are on the spectrum of, of where you've been you know, in the past and where you are today. Yeah, and, and it really gets to one of the things that I had at the outset, which is what does it all mean for the average business owner? You know, should they be scared of, uh, of their industry being Uberized. For instance, I just read on LinkedIn this morning, and this is, this is local, this is here in, in the municipality of Surrey, where, where you, you, know, you have uh, PwC sending out a, a, um, a piece of uh, marketing literature on win the race against digital disruption. And, and um, so there's so much hype out there. And, and so I wanna go back, what does it all mean for the average business owner and should they really be scared of being Uberized? I don't think they should be scared of being Uberized, Uberized as long as they add value. And I think that the value to the customers is, in fact, delivering that value might be in a different way. So I think what we have to realize is they shouldn't be scared of being Uberized in that there may be somebody in taking their business, but they want to be scared that somebody's not adding extra value to their business that they're not doing using a digital platform. And I think that's where really we have to think about the ideas. Businesses need to stop and think about, you know, what am I doing to deliver the value? And, you know, you brought a really good example up. We've, we had a, in a previous conversation about um, buying lighting for your house, right? And you were talking about the fact that you were using the person in the lighting store to really give you help. And you're not going to get that in the online world. You're, you're going to get maybe, a, you know, AI intelligence making suggestions, but you're not going to get that personalized individual help that you would in a store. But that doesn't mean that that person in the store can't be using digital technology to make their job better. So you still have people coming into the storefront, but you actually maybe enabling them to do a better job of what they're doing by giving them digital tools. That's not a transformation in what you do as a business. It's a transformation in just simply the way the, the employee interacts with customers. And, and you're right. I'm glad you brought that example up because I, it's a very powerful one um, because, of course, uh, the same people are going to have heard about the death of retail, how everybody's been Amazon out of business. And I, I don't want to go into the, the statistics about that, but the lighting store is an example of where in two hours we bought, I don't know, $3,000 worth of lights. And um, the person was literally an expert. So in order for me to have got all the information that that person had, I would have spent 20 or 30 hours online. Now, I know there's a bunch of younger people that would do that. I wouldn't. On the other hand, the part of the transaction that was less satisfying, and we could have done this all in, say, an hour and 15 minutes, was this woman's expertise was then slowed down by then saying, do we have it in stock or where, which warehouse is it in? And it's an example of, I don't think that organization needs to be scared of Amazon because the, and they were lined up out the door, by the way, people were, were waiting for these people. And where they could have been transformed is if she had had a little um, iPad or tablet and be able to check online very rapidly because what we wanted to buy the stuff that day. And um, so that's why she had to keep saying, do they have it in stock or not? Had she had a tablet, she could have processed twice as many people. Now that's a transformation for anybody's. That would have been doubled their revenue that day because guaranteed there were people that didn't wait. So it's a very complex example of where the old world works and where the new world and digital means could have um, uh, really helped them. 
And, and again, things like that are happening, like, for example, in the airline industry where, you know, they're giving um, your flight attendants an iPad and that's being used to not only take orders from people, you know, the simple thing you think about, but also actually, you know, holding um, preferences of passengers so that you know that, oh, this is a frequent flyer. This is somebody who's been, they like this kind of meal. They like this kind of wine. This kind of thing is already stored and helps them do better customer service. We're still flying a plane. You know, the plane's not going to not fly from the UAE to New York, but the idea, the way people are being treated on the plane is different. So again, is that a digital transformation or is that just enabling better customer service? Yeah, no, and I agree. And we're going to talk in future sessions about some more details of where where does digital transformation take place. But um, I I started to think about it again, going back to my, does the average business uh, owner really need to worry about this? And I was trying to put together a bit of a model for them. And I think one of the things is it depends on what your business model is. So going back to the lighting store, their business model was they don't just have ordinary retail clerks. They have true lighting professionals. So these people have tremendous degree of expertise. That's not going to go away. A lot of other retailers have people that, you know, have been there for five minutes and know nothing about the stock. So some of it's your business model. I think scale is an, an issue too. I don't think if you're a large enterprise, you can avoid digital transformation. You can if you're smaller and your business model is different. And some of it's the context. I know in upcoming weeks, we're going to talk about um, um, Azure and various other types of cloud-based. Does that transform you or not? Just putting your, you know, going from having your computers and servers to actually being on the cloud. So it's it's a very interesting, complex issue, I think. I guess, you know, I s slightly disagree with you on the small business because I actually think great thing about small businesses, they can be really agile and quick to move, whereas large businesses are stuck oftentimes. So I think the small business has an opportunity to rather than bolt on digital after the fact that they could start thinking about digital right now today and they can move quickly. And the greatest thing is that they do have things like cloud computing and all these other platforms that allow them to not have to invest in technology, which large businesses have done. And they've got sunk costs and They've got capital assets that are sitting there, whereas, whereas small businesses can actually, you know, do things like cloud-based or, you know, digital transformation in terms of storing data that they never thought about before, um, and they can move quickly. So I kind of think there's the way to change that mindset of thinking about digital first. So think about what can you do differently in your business. So that lighting store, I think, needs to think about their business model and say, wait a minute, we're not a lighting store anymore. We're a service-based business. And if they change their mindset to being a service-based business, then they, they're talking about digital enhancing that rather than saying we're a lighting store and we're a plain old boring lighting store. I think that's where the model, that's where you, by the way, you're going to get Uberized is if you think about yourself as, you know, a 19th century or 20th century business rather than thinking of yourself as a 21st century business by thinking about the fact that you really need to think about your customers wanting to interact with you in a different way and that your model may not be that I sell lamps, but that I sell service. I understand that point. What I was trying to make, and I think you, you've helped me clarify my thinking is, and when I, when I came to scale is that I actually think the smaller you are, depending on the business model, the more choices you have. So you can be digital or not digital. That's what I meant. So you could be a group of three lawyers. And if you're the experts in your region on some type of arcane labor laws, you can get away without being digital. Whereas if you want to be the largest law firm in Canada or the United States, you've got to be digital. And I, I think that was the point I was trying to make is that small businesses have more choice of what their business model is. 
See, I would go back to the retail store example, the lighting store. I think they do define themselves as being the customer service business. The issue is they, they don't have enough digitization in the delivery. Everybody was lining up because they know we just got a great one. They're all great. Every one of their consultants is great. So they're in the service business. They're not delivering it all the way through. Again, I'm going to go back to the lawyer example you just brought up. Those lawyers have a specialization. In the old world, you're right, they, they were the local firm. They could be an international firm in that specialization by going digital. So what's interesting about that is when you talk about scale, they can start off by delivering local, but if they put it in a digital world, they actually can open themselves up to markets around the world. If so, they want to, and that's they, my point. Absolutely. And so that's why I'm saying small businesses can choose different because again we we have a lot i was looking at some of our our clients and some of them have chosen a business model so that they can actually compete do incredibly well and not be digital but i think if you're above a certain scale you have to be digital and i guess i i guess i'm going to say why not start digital in but today's if, world but, but that, that's the beauty yeah. again I, I go through having been a small business owner for what 30 years uh -huh. now you know multiple different businesses i've owned the beauty of small business is that you can do it for the reasons you want to. Again, a, a global enterprise, you have to, you're either serving your financiers, whether they be public shareholders or the private equity firms. If you're a small business, you can be a lifestyle business and say, we're the, we're the three experts in this arcane labor law and that's all we want to be and we make an awful lot of money and we don't need to have advanced technologies. If you're going to be the labor law, um, experts for all of North America, you pretty much have to then go digital. That's my point, is that small businesses can choose and for, for different reasons. They don't have to be digital. They can if they want to be. And I agree with you, they can actually move faster than a large business can. And I think that we've got a lot of technologies out there today that allow small businesses to be digital very quickly. And you brought up cloud computing um, and you brought up, you know, Azure, like Microsoft does have platforms that are really set up to enable businesses that don't have to invest in IT. And I think that's a real power that they have in today's world is they can invest in technology as a concept, but not technology as hardware and software and all these other things. So I think there's an opportunity for them to say, well, you know, we don't have to be technologists, we can be lawyers. Um, and the good thing about you know, a lot of the services we have is that allows people to actually be out there and using those services and not have to worry about being technologists. So I'm saying that's why I was saying why not go digital from the beginning because you've got that opportunity. You're right, you don't have to. Um, it's just the question of, again, that scale where you don't want to get to the point where you're stuck and you can't scale because you're stuck in a in traditional business model or traditional technology that doesn't scale well. Why not start off on the cloud, start off with the, um, you know, the ability to use apps and all those other things that are really relatively inexpensive to build in today's world. Not necessarily that you have to have one, but why not think about it from the beginning? And the other thing is, think about failing and trying something new and different and failing at it. I mean, even the biggest companies have failed at digital, you know, um, What's the word I'm looking for? Um, even the biggest companies have failed at, at, you know, digital activities like, look at Google Glasses, it didn't go anywhere, but they tried it. Um, so I think the idea is that being able to fail on a low cost, low scale model also allows companies to think that. And I think that if you take the mindset of, let's not let technology define us, let's technology enable us, I think that that's a mindset that anybody should have small businesses, large businesses. I don't think you should get hung up on technology because I actually don't think digital transformation is about technology. I think it's about 
serving your customers and serving your your constituents better. Yeah, and I think that you, you've highlighted a point there because you've you raised a lot of uh, different issues. Um, but one of the ones that uh, I want to make is, and I go back to a point that I started with, is this is about transformation, which is much more about cultural and strategic things than it is about digital. So. For instance, I'll see people that are suddenly um, want, and, and they're using, say, something that is a digital technology on the mobile, but it hasn't actually changed their business. That's just, that's not transformation. Whereas I think you used an example when we were talking about this. Some Somebody could go from being manual, mm-hmm. doing manual quotes, and suddenly put together an Excel spreadsheet that they can copy every time when they do a quote. That is a digital transformation for that particular person. Again, I think that's a good example of what's the context. And so, because I'll often see people going, oh, we're using we're, we're using these mobile things, and but nothing's really improved in their business. So to me, you have to have the transformation part of it for it to really be effective. And it could be a spreadsheet when you used to be you know, doing everything manual. Totally agree. And again, I think that's, I think the idea is with the business is to look for opportunities and and simply look for opportunities to make things better, not look for opportunities to apply technology when it doesn't make sense. Um, but I think the idea is, and, and I think, you know, I'm just looking at this article from MIT Sloan that basically the title is Strategy Not Technology Drives Digital Transformation. I think that's really what we have to think about in terms of the fact that it is a strategic direction and you feel like, okay, now what's, what do I want to do? Where's the flaw? in my business? Where do I want to do better? Where do I feel like there's a bottleneck? Or where do I feel that there's a problem? And then say, okay, now how would I fix that problem? And But opening your mind up to saying, hey, what, how could I fix this? Or even asking my customers how I can fix that. I mean, the greatest thing that we have about digital transformation now and social media and these other things is you can ask people. And the idea is, again, businesses have been strategically, you know, hesitant to go to their customers and say, I've got a problem. What's interesting is that customers probably really respect a business that says, hey, I know this is a problem. How would you suggest we fix it? And what's interesting about that is that's where digital could be transformative is by saying, hey, instead of having us fix the problem, guessing on technology or the consultants that are coming in telling us what technology would use, why don't we go to the customers and talk to them about, you know, what should we, what should we do? What, what's, where's the problem? And then look at solutions rather than the other way around. And I just want to end here, and we're going to have Kim back in the future, and we want to talk, drill down. Microsoft has this, and I, I'm finding it quite useful, and I realize they're using it to sell business just like uh, the other people, whether they're consulting firms or whatever they are, is that, um, and, and they really look at four, four key places for digital transformation, engaging your customers, and Kim's been talking about that, empowering your employees, and that's a very interesting question in and of itself. Optimizing your op- operations, and that's the example um, uh, of, of the lighting store where the customer service was outstanding and we were willing to wait for as, as the person ran back and forth. But if they optimize their operations so that they're connecting their warehouse and stuff right to the front. And then the final one is transporting your products, which is of course products and services. So I think the next time we have uh, Kim back on, we're going to drill down on some of those and, and uh, just just see where, where we can see digital things uh, affecting people on those four pillars. Thanks very much, Kim. Thanks. Now for one of our regular reviewed segments, we will be doing a full review of Dynamics 365 Talent, the Attract app. To do so, we will be chatting to a new contributor, Lisa McQuillan, who is our user adoption consultant. Hello, Lisa. 
Hi, Andrew. How are you? I'm great. It's good to have you on. Well, thanks for inviting me. Now, as David always reminds us, we will start with the conclusion. So let's turn the tables a bit and start with you, Lisa. What do you give it out of 10 and why? I give Talent Attract an 8 out of 10. Um, It's a solid little application that handles recruitment tasks really, really well. Let's go into the details of it. What about two user adoption issues? There's ease of use and how easy is it to learn? What do you think about those? Ease of use, right up there, um, especially for people who work in recruiting, so they know their processes. So learning how to use the system to support their business needs is going to be very, very quick. Okay. Now, does it do important business functions and does it have a compelling roadmap? Business functions. Well, recruiting functions, it absolutely addresses the key needs of being able to uh, post your jobs. It's got a great integration with LinkedIn Recruiter. You're able to utilize the power of LinkedIn as well as your own internal systems. Um, Scheduling of interviews and being able to communicate, that's all automated with both the candidate and your entire hiring team. So again, really great little features that will take some of the pain out of the whole recruiting process for organizations. Um, Compelling roadmap. It absolutely has a compelling roadmap. It's also Talent Attract is actually one of four modular applications that Microsoft's looking at within the recruiting and the talent space. The first one. So it also works in combination with uh, other ones. So the roadmap for Attract itself in combination with the other talent uh, modular applications is actually really quite exciting. Excellent. So given that it is a relatively new software product, how technically stable is it? <laughs> as stable as most Microsoft when they first come out? Uh, no. <laughs> um, it worked absolutely uh, without any problems while I was working with it. That's good to hear. So we're going to bring in David quickly for his reaction. Uh, David, do you have any comments on what Lisa just said? Yeah, I would echo what uh, Lisa said. Uh, I might be a little harder on it from a, from the point of view of the functional fit. It it really does a nice job of streamlining recruiting, but it doesn't yet have as many options and bells and whistles that you might want to have. Like, for instance, it's, it's great at doing communication with the uh, – with the interviewees or the candidates, and yet you can you can't tailor the the, the email as much as you, you you'd like at this point. But but we know that's coming down on the roadmap. Um, but I agree it's it's a great uh, it's a great set of four that they've got that fit into their whole uh, target in the human capital management area. So um, uh, it's really exciting. Um, I think it also allows us to get into something that we're seeing a lot of now, which is which is um, Clients that are wanting to do more or, or have more modern uh, recruitment processes, e-recruitment hubs. And uh, I know, Lisa, that's something that we've started uh, looking at where, where, where you add some other components of Dynamics and really create a, a full, uh, complete system. Absolutely. And I think uh, you, there is such a changing recruiting landscape from both um, what organizations are are feeling they need to do and also candidate expectations. So being able to have something that's very transparent, uh, you know, externally facing to candidates as well as internally with your entire team, 
absolutely the way recruitment is going. Yes, that's right. I mean, the, the, I've read uh, in in a couple of places uh, which which plays on well with the dynamics is that uh, people are starting to call these candidate uh, or or talent management systems, relationship management systems, and I think that the the attract and it, and its three sibling. Uh, modular apps are, are great, but I think you need to put something in the front end there to handle uh, broader communication issues uh, through a portal and also to make a robust processes before and afterwards. Uh, for instance, uh, making sure that you're, the people that are recruiting actually have uh, authorized jobs and so on and so forth. Absolutely. Thanks for that, Lisa. And we look forward to your blog and infographic about this in a few days. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Welcome back. We are going to talk about another digital gem from the vault. David, what case study do you have for us this month? Well, Andrew, we're going back to the dawn of time. Well, 1976 to be exact, to talk about when financial institutions started to fully automate. I think it's interesting to think about the subject in an area of media fascination with small fintech firms disrupting the financial industry because banks and security firms have been some of the leaders in digital transformation for quite a long time. Now, why would going back so far help us with digital transformation in today's environment? Well, you know, Andrew, I think for a couple of reasons. The first is that we can learn much from the successes of the past. The automation in banking was a tremendous success. And secondly, we're currently absorbing in society today a range of different technological changes, with some people being filled with tremendous excitement and enthusiasm, while many others are filled with fear, uncertainty, and doubt. That's exactly the same as it was in the 1970s with one big difference. For many people, this was the first real public exposure to computers. Computing had been working in the back office of many businesses since the 1950s, but with savings accounts, suddenly it became you know, right out to in front and impacted to ordinary people. One other difference I should note is that in the mid-1970s, it was business organizations who were bringing new technology to reluctant customers. Whereas in our era, it is customers, mainly younger ones, cheerfully embracing new technologies and forcing many organizations to adopt technologies that they're worried about and leery of. And uh, these organizations are often unsure of how to introduce them, even whether they should. So there's some lessons from the past that I think can be used in it today. So what was it like back then? Well, Andrew, I know it's hard for you and many other people that uh, have been born um, since 1980 or after, but uh, back then... Um, Basically, banking was manual with the exception of checking accounts, which was which had been automated for some time. And we have that, an interesting note, we still have that legacy today. If you see the weirdest looking numbers at the bottom of your checks, that was how they were processed. And to some degree, we haven't changed that technology. The rest was completely manual and savings accounts were at the heart of ordinary people's savings. There weren't nearly the number of options. People weren't investing in bonds and the stock market and mutual funds like they are today. So savings accounts were a huge deal. 
And people would regularly bring in their pass books that were transcribed by hand. They would queue up at the, the wicket to get their savings accounts updated by hand. And they were also literally scared of technology, like there was ghosts in the machines. We don't have much of that today. Older people might not jump onto everything new, but they aren't literally scared of most technologies. They're confused or resentful, or and many just choose not to indulge. I think the biggest comparison is is to what it was like back then in terms of where there could be some fear is is the area maybe of ro- robots, AI, autonomous things where people can get, think they can get out of control. So that's the only comparison to what it was like back when everything was manual. Right. So how did the banks introduce new savings systems? Well, Andrew, they realized what a big threat this was to customers who could and did often move their savings accounts to non-automated banks because not every bank automated on the same uh, speed and scale. So they did several things extremely well. Uh, Again, you know from uh, us talking about this that I think that change management is the most crucial plank in digital transformation, not the technology itself. So they did uh, several things. They did low-profile pilots, and it's important that it's low-profile, so it's under the radar, and people are doing that today as well, at certain branches with certain types of customers in order to make sure that technology was working, the concept was working, and, and so on. And then they put together some of the best organizational training I have ever ever seen. Uh, I was a bank employee in those days and uh, you, you absolutely learned it inside out. You, you knew it easily, and but also how to address uh, customers' concerns. At the same time, the, the banks came out with very high profile and visible educational campaigns for customers well in advance to get them used to it. Uh, they would publish stuff in the papers. I know we don't papers much today, but that was the, the, the main way of communicating with people. And then the, the final thing is the banks rolled that out in a steady and focused manner until each branch was converted and branches were chosen based upon customer profile. So if you had a rural branch with older people, that might be one of the last ones where if you had a downtown urban branch, uh, those would go much faster so that the people that were nervous were got to at the very end. Okay. So was it really successful? Well, to me, it's truly a digital transformation as the banks then proceeded to go through and automate basically all of the back office functions, eliminating the centuries long tradition of bankers hours that you probably never heard of, but banks were only open from 10 until three. And, but it was absolutely required because everything except for checks was done by hand. So in the morning, you know, the, the people working in the bank might've been there from eight in the morning till five, but the rest of the time they were doing everything manually. Uh, it's interesting to note that in the early 1980s, the same process was followed um, for our now ubiquitous ATMs. And of course, somebody like yourself just assumes cash machines are everywhere. But um, it wasn't quite as successful, but that was because they made one strategic flaw that for some reason in their wisdom, they decided to charge more, not less, for ATM transactions. Everybody knew that if you're if if you have um you know some kind of automation handling it, it's going to be cheaper. So that actually it took um it took a few years longer than it should have for um ATMs that are everywhere now um to to take off. But it's interesting to think about this is that um, there's still people in our society 
that don't trust ATMs. And that just amazes me how people didn't trust them, David. I mean, I use them almost every single day. But there's still, I agree, but there's still people today, you know, mainly older people, but people are afraid of it, uh, you know, like eating their card, not like it hasn't happened or, you know, not getting the right of cash out and so on. So there still is some mistrust. So I know when we when we talk about this, you know, uh, not every young kid um, jumping onto um, SNAP is is absolutely where society's at, that there's a, there's a range of people absorbing technologies. I agree. Well, another interesting tale, and I think that some of these lessons can definitely be applied today. I'll be right back to wrap things up. That'll do it for the sixth edition of our Digital Solution Series. A big shout out goes out to Doug McLaughlin and our special guests, Kim Milnes and Lisa McQuillan for stopping by. I'm Andrew Walker, along with David Crouch. Thanks for tuning in. 